You're listening to a podcast about brain health in diverse America. The goal of this podcast is to inform listeners about the latest research on healthy brain aging and risk factors leading to cognitive impairment and dementia. While the scientific community knows that aging affects brain health of Black, Hispanic, and European Americans quite differently, we still don't know the why and the how that this happens. This podcast will closely examine healthy and unhealthy aging in America as we discuss themes especially relevant to Black and Hispanic Americans. I'm Dr. David Johnson, Director of the California Alzheimer's Disease Research Center in the East Bay, and one of many scientists working on the Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study. This podcast is a production of the National Institute on Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the grant-funded Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study, and the UC Davis School of Medicine. This podcast is produced by Darling New Media Podcast Studios in Sacramento, California. Today, my guests are Rosa Perella Mavarez, Lillian Pacheco-Cole, and Luz del Carmen Contreras. Rosa is in the Rio Grande Valley Alzheimer's Disease Research Center for Minority Aging, the AD RICMAR program. And she's a program coordinator at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. She has extensive experience conducting outreach, recruitment, screening, and testing research participants, particularly those living in low resource settings. Over the past three years, she has supported several initiatives in the Rio Grande Valley with the purpose of building partnerships in the Hispanic community. Lillian is the lead clinical research coordinator at the University of California, San Diego's Department of Neuroscience in the Shiley Marcos ADRC. As a seasoned clinical researcher for 20 years at UCSD, she has an educational background in health administration and she's highly experienced in the clinical trial management and especially clinical trials that are trying to address health disparities. She works in observational studies and research laboratory management and the administration of a variety of industry and NIH granted funded studies. She is also a Navy veteran with a background as a boatswain and a cross-rated medical corpsman. Luce is a graduating senior at Sacramento State where she will be uh, receiving her bachelor's in health science and gerontology. She has worked as a medical assistant for 10 years, first in private practice and then in federally qualified health clinics where she advocates for underserved communities. She is currently serving as an intern at the UC Davis Alzheimer's Disease Research Center where she has concentrated on determining the challenges faced in recruiting Hispanic and Latino communities for research. She hopes to become a medical provider where she can continue to advocate for underserved communities. In this episode of Brain Health in Diverse America, we'll be discussing how to recruit Hispanic Latino Americans into a research study, what preparation is necessary prior to going into the field and recruiting. First, let me thank you all for being on Brain Health in Diverse America. And we have an exciting topic to, to discuss today, some more about recruiting 
and the importance of the recruiting to the Latin American, Hispanic American community. And so I, to my established and really esteemed colleagues here, I'm gonna put the first question out to the group and then I'm gonna go around and ask people to comment um, with Lillian first. How do you go about identifying eligible or, or, or participants that you think will be great and enjoy the study? How do you go about and do you see them in the community or how do you find them? Great question, Dr. Johnson. So <clears throat> we actually uh, have a variety of uh, collaborators outside of the community that uh, we are collaborating with a neuron clinic in South Bay, Chula Vista area where a lot of clinical patients are actually being screened. Uh, we're doing memory, brief memory screenings. We are also uh, collaborating with an UCSD, the psychiatry department, uh, who is also uh, one of the principal investigators. Dr. Slatar is doing a subjective cognitive testing as well. And they have a set of promotoras that go out in the community and talk about health disparities as, along with Alzheimer's and the importance of dementia uh, research and, and evaluations, clinical evaluations. And then we have our ongoing cohort uh, that we've had for many years at UCSD by word of mouth. A lot of that happens by word of mouth where they'll bring in other individuals into the study. Um, we have many other tools. We have uh, social media and um, just a variety of tools. That's really, that's really great. I think not everyone in the audience may know exactly what a promotora is. Can you take just a second and unpack what this idea, who this person is? Yeah, so we actually, um, I believe at the ADRC, we learned about the promotoras or promotoras uh, a few years ago with uh, one of the health centers, is a community health center. They have uh, multiple clinics throughout San Diego County. And they, these ladies are basically, a lot of them are of age. A lot of them are somewhere around between 50 and 70 years old. They go out in the community and literally knock, knock on people's doors and, and start talking about diabetes, cardiovascular problems, dementia. And um, they're very outgoing. They love to, uh, they love to chit chat. Uh, they love to have little gatherings. I know that one of the, um, there's a physician from Tijuana who actually does a Zumba class in San Diego and a lot of the promotoras go there. And so they use that time, you know, to actually talk about, okay, what's the next event, community health fairs and that sort of thing. But as far as the promotoras, that's basically what they do. They just go out in the community and they talk about multiple health disparities, not just dementia, but for our site, we do have, um, I know there's at least two that that's basically what they focus on, talking about Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's research. Wow, it sounds like your group is really in the San Diego community of Latinos and really sort of helping a public health initiative as well as just the research initiative of Absolutely. supporting these holders older adults in the living in the community. That's really exciting and neat to hear. Yes. Rosa, you're in Texas. And so how does this differ or are you using a lot of the same uh, techniques in Texas at the on the border? 
How do you go about doing this? Yes, pretty much. I, I can relate what uh, with what uh, Lillian is um, commenting on. Uh, pretty much here in Texas, we we have a lot of support from the promoters. Um, they have been trained a lot related to you know cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Um, we have been focused on supporting them. Uh, to know a little bit more about Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, healthy aging, so they can also communicate um, about that within the community. Uh, another strategy that we have used is participating in listening sessions uh, within the community and with our community partners, um, focus groups, um, also participating in community forums um, across the Rio Grande Valley. That's another way that, that we have used to um, recruit participants. Uh, we have relied as well in, the, I don't know, like what is traditional, like flyers. Um, mm -hmm. But we haven't done that much in social media. Um, I would say our main efforts has been like going to the community. Um, recently, we also um, created like our, an, a specific email within UTRGB uh, that pretty much is like a channel of communication for people that it's, uh, cons have any type of concerns or want to know about our studies. Um, and it has been a good source I mean, I, I, the email I wasn't sure that that's what was going to work, but mm -hmm. we have had a lot of people sending emails and asking questions and just letting us know that they would like to participate. So, so again, you know, being directly to the community, but looking for new avenues of, of, of contact, directly contacting families um and what what do you think about the role of the family to get these older adults in rosa when you talk and when the promotoras and when you go out to the community whether that's a church or another local partner food food distribution center however you 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 do that how do you involve or embrace the family is that really important how does how does that work within your in the at the border well um we understand that for we, uh, as you know, we are focused on Hispanic population, and, and we understand the value of family uh, within the Hispanics. So uh, every time that we go out there and we start talking about what we are doing uh, within our center, uh, it's always letting them know that it's not only for the person that has some sort of memory concerns, but also families invited to. Families invited to participate if they want to, even though if they don't have any type of concerns. Uh, they are invited to uh, just to be there with their family member. Uh, I mean, it's not something that is that we are going to talk only with the person with the concern, but, all, but that we are open um, to talk to the whole family if that is necessary. If they will feel like they will trust more, if they have like 
I don't know, the spouse or the daughter or the son. Mm-hmm. And uh, our uh, focus has always been um, taking into consideration the family. And that has been our focus within the Valley and also other studies that we have in Latin America. Luce, I was wondering, would you comment on how we recruit in Northern California and who the, who the, how do you identify folks and, and how do you talk to folks? Do you want to take a second and just talk about Northern California? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm not a specialist in this, but what I've seen in my experience, um, we do a lot of recruitment by going out to the community, um, organizations, churches, and again, through word of mouth, like like Lillian and Rosa said. Um, there's also um, flyers uh, through social media, emails, postcards. Um, and by identifying them, um, I think... And it's just opening it up to the age range that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where the where the older adults congregate, where they where they run, where is the school of older adults? And let's go fishing in that pond. Right, right. So you got your churches, organizations, mm-hmm. <laughs> grocery stores, things like that. Um, so we've talked now a little bit about, you know, the four first steps of identifying the community members who might be interested in participating in research. Now is the hard question. I'm going to go around the virtual room again, and I'm going to ask Lillian, you know, how do you explain research to these older adult Latinos? Um, do you just walk up cold like a Martian, or how do you how do you introduce the topic? <laughs> Definitely not like a Martian. They would throw their shoe at me if that was the case. Um, No, you know, uh, it's so currently what I'm doing is because we have within our team, we have individuals that actually do that first call, introductory call. So at some point when um, people express interest in being contacted, uh, to talk about the studies that we currently have at, at the ADRC. Uh, they'll do sort of a brief screening just to see if which which study they're they're more like more than likely to um, be mm. recommended to or they may be interested in. And then sometimes there's no real interest. They may just want to know about what's out there, right? So part of what I do is I I'm the second person that talks to them. And one thing that I've done throughout my career and and just in research and in healthcare is I've always, I come from the angle, like I have to treat this person, not just how I want to be treated, but this could be like my mother, my father, you know, a family member. And just depending on the level of comfort that they're expressing, some people have um, higher education, some of them have had no education and some of them somewhere in between. It's just, it all depends uh, in terms of, for the most part in my experience, there has to be a sense of humility and just really getting to know them first. And I do spend a lot of time on the phone. I do, so I've spent 
two hours just talking about just their life and, you know, the latest telenovela and whatever it is, you know, <laughs> and they're joking and they're talking about their grandkids and they're talking about all sorts of things. And, and then, you know, it just depends on where the conversation goes. I do try to make it a very um, personable conversation because I have to do that. I have to be able to at least gain their trust for them to tell me if they're having a memory problem, it's possible that they haven't actually talked about it with their spouse or their kids or their neighbor. They just need to talk about it with someone. And I try not to put in the title, my title, my professional background, none of that. I just want them to feel as comfortable as possible. So that's where I bring in, okay, so what's going on? You know, have you had memory problems? And then I introduce, this is what we're doing. This is mm -hmm. an opportunity for you to get your memory tested annually. Um, and I'm not just focusing on one study. I'm basically, I'm basically making a package deal. You know, we have a longitudinal study that where their memory can be tested annually. And then along with that, there are all these other tests, biomarker tests. And how do you explain biomarkers to someone that's never heard that word before, right? So it's very involved, very detailed, uh, but more than anything coming from a, I'm just a regular person. I'm just like you and I'm interested in knowing what's going on with you. So then that way, here's what I got. If you want it, if you're interested, I'm here to guide you. I'm not here just to recruit you. You're not just a number or just a patient that's been seen in clinic for 15 minutes and then you're out of here. That's sort of a strategy that I use. A lot of, a lot of um, uh, uh, you know, health education about what is memory loss. Is that some of the types of topics that you're touching with educating the older yes. adults about what is memory loss in the first place? Do you, do you think, they think it's normal aging? Is that one of the themes that comes up for you? Absolutely, yeah, it comes up a lot. Um, a lot, most people I think are under the impression that um, it's part of aging and you know, it happened to their parents. So therefore it's, it's happening to them and it's normal. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of education that does go into is along with as we age, our brain shrinks a little bit. However, it's not normal to put your keys in the refrigerator. You know, there's, it's a little deeper than that. We need to look into that. We want to know mm -hmm. why you can't remember certain things. So yes, I do try to explain it as simple as possible. And then what can we do? What, uh, what's currently being done uh, on the research end and, and in comparison to what they would have to go through clinically with their doctors where their memory testing, you know, could be not as comprehensive as in a research setting. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's quite a bit of education that goes into it. Thanks, Lillian. You're welcome. Rosa, do you have to, do you find that you're doing a lot of health education in your outreach or is it more about the the relationship and the 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 cultural humility and the the interaction it, it, how does that work for in your center with you i would say it's like a balance between the two um and we 
we usually try to approach, um, I mean, when we explain what is it that we are doing, um, like natural language, lay language, it's kind of hard. I mean, you know, for example, when you are in the consenting process, um, you know, yeah. you know how an informed consent is, right? I mean, like the language is used in that document. So we try to gather that, but explaining that information to them in, in the most natural way um, possible. And that also involves some health education. As Lillian says, when we start talking about biomarkers, it's like a word that they have, most of them, they have never even heard mm -hmm. about that. Uh, we haven't used this approach here yet in the Valley, but back in Venezuela, uh, uh, in which you know we have a very low level of education in the population that we are following. Um, we even use videos for the most complex um, assessment, like or or the ones that they fear the most, like yeah, the MRI, for example. And then we over there we we created a video and we explain in the. We explain to them like the process and what happens when you get in the clinic and what happens after and how trying some some sort of explain how you may feel within the machine when you are in the machine and and it helps us a lot um so really the videos break down a step by step so from through the eyes of the participant correct me if i'm wrong yeah. through the eyes of the participant they're gonna already go have gone through the process once in their minds by watching the video exactly that that's what we're trying to uh, away on explaining what they will face if they agree on doing that um now you're a really good person to ask this question to that i've been dying to really get into more rosa because as a you know, a, a trained scientist, my my level of being used to the consent document is pretty high. I'm I'm like, oh, well, you know, just give it to me. I'll sign it. You know, it's legalese, you know, and Americans often, especially white Americans, they run through those consent documents a whole lot quicker than our Latino participants. Can you tell me a little bit about how you approach this legal document, you know, this document full of legal terms or very formal document, how you present it, how you talk about it, um, in, in when you're consenting someone in, uh, in Texas? Yeah, well, pretty much they, they have a copy of the document in hand. And we explain to them that we will go each of the sections um, and we try to explain the information that is within the consent in the most natural way possible. Uh, and we let them to ask questions. Uh, we go over like section by section the way the consent is um, prepared. Uh, but as, as you mentioned, I have seen also that. Um, I mean, when we are consenting, uh, People from the states, let's say, um, they go over quickly, or they they may not have as much questions as Latinos, or somebody that is uh, 
you know, approaching this for the first time uh, mm. or entering in, in, in like the studies that we do that involve imaging, uh, you know, block drawing. Um, uh, but what we try to use the, the natural language, I mean, the most easy way to, um, to explain to them. Um, main questions, how mm -hmm. long is the Marai? Um, I guess that's, I mean, imaging is one of the things that they have like fear of uh, more than any other uh, type of assessment. Lillian, I want to come back because we have a, a real different population with the um, border, the border largely Mexican Americans who are almost, you know, crossing or very frequently, if not, uh, you know, living at uh, straddling two nations, and so culturally, um, a lot more Mexican than your culture, uh, 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 culturally of these uh, Latin Americans, um, Mexican Americans, and the melting pot and the urbanity of San Diego. You'll find people that have been there for four generations, and then you'll find brand new Mexican Americans. You'll find Dominicans. You'll find people from all over the world. Is the feeling when you're doing the consent process different, that you have to change that in any way? It varies. Um, I've noticed, at least for the last five years, we've had a lot of people from Mexico City that have family residing in uh, Tijuana and then also San Diego and LA and basically all throughout Southern California. Um, and so in terms of education, we have some that are much higher education, they're doctors, they're lawyers. And so when it talk when it comes to consenting, you know, they they can appreciate the detail um, of reading the consent themselves in Spanish. And I often actually get corrected when I'm talking to them because um, I mean, I can say my Spanish has definitely gotten a lot better. I am bilingual, but there's nothing like the Mexico City Spanish is absolutely, it's, it's sharp, to me it's sharp. So I do get intimidated sometimes by, by those folks. So as opposed to some uh, part of our cohort where lower education, it does require a lot of uh, more checking in as I'm reviewing the consent. A lot of them, they're like, they look at how many pages I'm about to read, and even though it's not their first time, they ask me, like, are you seriously gonna read all that? And I'll say, I'm gonna highlight everything. I'm gonna give you a copy of this, and I wanna make sure that if you have any questions, I'm addressing them, and I don't care if you have questions later, you please ask me. I wanna cover everything. So yes, I do have to switch it up a little bit, it just depends on the individual. But um, Southern California, I wanna say being, I'm from New Mexico and I can, majority of the people within the Southern part of New Mexico and Northern and the Northern part of Texas, a lot of field workers, a lot of immigrants, field workers that, you know, they work mm -hmm. throughout the years at the canneries and that sort of thing. And so, reading a consent to someone there is definitely different to someone that may not have as much education 
living in South Bay, Chula Vista, and San Isidro area in San Diego County, which they're not necessarily working in a field, but they're working in labor jobs, construction, um, some field work, but um, a lot of labor work. So mm-hmm. yes, there's there's a, quite a bit of a difference there when reading reviewing a consent. Luce, what is your experience in Northern California with this sort of interaction between education and place, uh, uh, the family longevity in um, in California or in the United States in general, I guess. I mean, my sense is that Northern California has a lot longer established families, but not, they're still um, in different roles. What, what's your experience? Is that wrong? Am I mischaracterizing? No, I, I think it varies. Um, it varies a lot. We do have a lot of uh, generational uh uh, Latinos here can be first, second, or third generation, but there's also a lot of farm workers. Um, in the federally qualified health clinic that I work in, I came across many of them who don't know how to read or write, and and they may be embarrassed about it. Um, so it 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 just varies, um, especially because we're set in the capital. So. There's there's a lot of differences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Latino, uh, um, uh, the Latin American uh, participants that we see are more or less educated on whole. Do you think in Northern California, Luce? Uh, the participants, I would say, they're more educated um, mm-hmm. because they have a sense of what research is and what the goal is. Um, so yeah, I would say they're, they're more educated than, than the immigrants who, who come. And so you think it's just that they have an ear for listening to research and why it might be important, or is there some, I mean, I, I want to just sort of highlight as part of the variability of the Latin American culture here in the United States, education is a hugely variable component because um, some people come for jobs and some people have been recruited here. Some people have been here for many generations. And just what does education do for that person to make them more likely to be in a research study? And I'm going to ask you in particular and put you on the hot seat, Luce. How can we do a better job of making our research accessible to the lower educated uh, Latino, Latin American living here in the United States? I would say terminology, um, using the easiest words possible. And um, when translating, just like Lillian has said, there's some words that don't translate exactly to what we mean in Spanish. So just, I think we'll say asking for help in translating those words. Um, this, the terminology will be one big thing. <laughs> This one big word would just deter someone away from wanting to participate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important uh, precaution for everyone to hear. Is the if the if it's very jargony in our explanations, it's going to be a real turnoff for a lot of people. I'm getting people nodding their heads that the audience can't see. Lily and Rosa nodding their head yes, but. Um, terminology and jargon 
is really important. Um, I know, um, let's go back to you, Lillian, for just a moment, because you've been, how many years now have you been working with the San Diego group on, on research in general, but the Alzheimer's Disease Center or, or any other aging center? How many years have you been working? I've been at UCSD for 20 years and within the Department of Neuroscience for seven. So all together in research, about 16 years. Wow. Wow. And so tell me, so you're, a, I, and I'm going to ask you this question because I think you have probably have the deepest experience. How do you keep in touch with your participants? Once you've recruited them, once they've come in for the initial study, they're all gung-ho. We love UC San Diego. Um, we love you, Lillian. Then a year passes. How do you keep in touch with them? That is such a good question. I think it's uh, one of the biggest challenges as a study coordinator because our, our, our plates are full, right? But we also have to make sure that we, that we stay in touch. And so one thing that I did for, for example, for this, for my cohort, um, for Mother's Day, for the ones that have already participating in DVCID, I sent a text to all the moms that I know, which, I mean, we don't have that many yet, but I sent other text messages to other from the longitudinal study. Um, I like they, that. I'm writing that down. That's brilliant. They were so grateful. They were like, oh my goodness. And, you know, and one of them just, we were just going back and forth for like throughout the day. <laughs> Um, I think those little things go a long way. Happy birthday cards, um, happy Father's Day, just checking in, how are you doing? Those things. I mean, it's, it has to, they, I feel like it just has to have a sense of a, a family almost. And I gotta be honest, I don't even do that with my own family, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't call them or text them. They call me and text me and okay. But, you know, this is, I want them to be in the study and I want them to stay in the study and I want to definitely make that good impression in them that I'm thinking about them. Well, I love your framing of this in the, in terms of family, which I'm a big believer in familismo and the power of familismo, especially within the Latin American community. So I like that quite a bit. Um, Rosa, do you, do you have any secrets to share with the audience? Well, uh, we have done postcards. Uh, I remember one time we did text messages saying Merry Christmas. So we sent text message to everyone <laughs> for Christmas one time, I remember. Um, we also tried to do events. Uh, even the small events uh, in which we invite uh, participants, uh, events that pretty much will be like health education, something related to you know healthy aging, um, memory concerns. Um, we used to do events like um, with one of the doctors that supports our job, uh, memory or cognitive stimulation workshops. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, and we just do the events and invite people and and this doctor just prepare and organize some sort of 
activities that were like linked one to another, but that were pretty much stimulating cognition within the participants. That's another thing that we have done. Uh, I mean, with, even though the follow-up is like yearly, right? Within the year, we try to do something or activities or Mm -hmm. that they can also um, participate. So they are always like in mind, having in mind all oh, the study, you know, um, the memory study. Luce, you've been, you've become a student in your gerontology program at Sac State of outreach and recruitment now. Do you have some clever things that you've read in the literature that people are doing? that maybe we haven't mentioned? Yes, um, from the literature review, um, I, I read that providing sufficient information to individuals, to Latinos and Hispanic individuals will um, have them be eager to be more involved in studies and also having bilingual uh, recruiters or someone that they can um, someone that they can um, interact with or just communicate easier, um, the similarity. Correct the Spanish. Huh? <laughs> Correct I'm the Spanish. joke of Williams. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> they teach us how to, how to talk proper Spanish. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And then, yeah, just teach us how to do that. Um, and then being knowledgeable of the cultural differences. Um, yeah, I think that's what the real lesson here is, isn't it? That um, no matter, you know, there's so much, so many different um, stripes of Latin Americans, Hispanic Americans, that having that humility to understand their context of family and where they've come from in their experience is really important. Right. Um, even differences that seem uh, geographically small, there is a pretty big difference between, for instance, someone coming from Guatemala or El Salvador and someone coming from Northern Mexico uh, versus someone whose family has been here three generations in the United States. Um, culture is hugely different and variable. Yes. Um, so being open-minded to that will greatly influence. I wanted so, to add regarding yes. the engagement and how to, uh, what we have done as well is we, every year we have an open house where uh, we have, we have two open houses and one that is catered for the Latino part of our cohort and then the non-Latino. And pre-COVID, we actually had, uh, we hosted a uh, Padres game invite. So where we invited multiple of our participants in the longitudinal study um, where they could come to the game. It was uh, VIP sitting, it was box sitting, catered. Uh, for one person and a guest, and they had a really good time. Uh, we've also done within our open house where we uh, 
at one of the local golf course. We had sort of a continental breakfast and multiple of our uh, neurologists, principal investigators came out and did a talk uh, that was pertinent to the Latino community about dementia, Alzheimer's, other neurological and psychiatric conditions. Um, and then throughout the year, yes, there's a lot of engagement. We have multiple people. Most of our staff is uh, bilingual. And so a lot of them do go out into the community and they do reach out to our current cohort just to stay in touch and say hello and give them updates about the latest and greatest at our center newsletters. Um, we did have an event that was actually uh, sort of a morale booster for the promotoras. This was pre-COVID. We had a large group uh, that were not, they were actually part of another um, division of neuroscience. And uh, we had a taco guy that came out and had, we had a taco feast outside of our building and that was great. And, you know, we, it was an appreciation event uh, for our promotoras for going out there and walking out in the heat and just, you know, talking to people and, and they really, really appreciated that. It just, and it helps us at the end because they're doing the hard work. They're basically bringing, they're, they're the vehicle to us. So to bring individuals to our study. So a variety of things that we've done for outreach and retention. Those are some really great ideas. Um, so here's, here's what I'd like to do is go around the virtual room here for just a moment. And I want you to think about and compare, you know, why an older adult Latino or Latina would want to participate in research? What drives them? What motivates them? Is it the personalismo of the research recruiter, of the doctors, of the staff? Um, is it the incentive? Is it the event? Like they just want to be part of something bigger? They like going to breakfasts um, and listen to these talks? What's driving them most, do you think, Rosa? Uh I think it depends. Um, I would say part of our participants, uh, they, they believe something is happening and they want to know more and they want to understand. Like, okay, why am I forgetting as much as I'm forgetting now? I mean, I wasn't like that in the past what's going on so i want to know more they don't know but they want to know more um and i would say those are like the easy <laughs> participants right because it's something within themselves that is driving them to participate um we have also cases uh in which the daughter the son the spouse is the one that is like bringing them i mean you need to do this because i believe that you need to participate in, in this research in this study this will be beneficial for you and and for those is we need to have like another approach right because they are coming because a loved one is telling them to um, 
So I would say it it depends. That uh, there are profiles of participants, and you cater it to it. How about loose? What do you think is driving people's participation in research? What what gets you in, gets them in the door, and gets them excited? What part of the process do you think? I think it varies. Um, there's many individuals who might want to come just for the monetary compensation. Um, there can be a situation that they might need money to, I don't know, buy groceries, pay for gas, and they might find this an easier way to to get that. Um, also, there's other individuals that might have an altruistic um, sense uh, where they want to help future family members and they know this is the way. Um, so they will show up with it with with altruism, just wanting to help the, for the future. And then there there can be other other individuals who know that uh, this is a way of um, getting medical care. Um, so they will show up wanting to to find out something or or just know that they're healthy. So they will join a study to to know those things. To confirm their health or right. status. Um, even though we don't pro provide them right. with health, you're saying that they kind of backdoor this. It's the uh, thought of it, of I'm gonna be getting some health access through this, so I would join it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about you, Lillian? What do you think is driving a lot of your participants to come out and volunteer? Yeah, so just to second what Luz was saying, it's is exactly it. There's there could be the monetary compensation. Um, a lot of our participants, in my experience, have actually wanting to participate as a result of a, of a neurologist talking to them, as I mentioned earlier, because we are collaborating with a neuron clinic in Chula Vista, um, where I believe the, the doctors within this clinic, it's a New York clinic, and there most of the doctors are predominantly Latino mm. or some sort of Latino background. And uh, we have, there's a, a neurologist, cardio, cardiologist, yeah, and then they have nurse practitioners. So they have a whole faculty and staff on board, and they're focusing in, in Latino healthcare. And so when the neurologist says, you know, you may benefit from doing this much more extensive, more, much more extensive or comprehensive memory testing, they'll listen. They're receptive to what their doctor is telling them to do. Um, now, if say that their insurance is an issue for them, now having the DVCID as a leverage, even though we're not providing any type of clinical feedback, at least they can get a copy of their images and maybe they can use that to take to their primary care or there's that. So there's the clinical aspect that Luz was saying that they may look at it as I'm gonna get some sort of medical care, but we're not calling it, we're not calling it clinical, we're not calling it medical care, but they're getting feedback. Mm -hmm. um, about what their cognitive status is. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them simply want to do it because there's a, there may be a strong family history 
and they're fearful that they're they're next and any little thing that they're starting to forget as early as we have a few that are considered young onset in our study um and so they're a lot of them have come in with their with their adult sons or daughters so they're fearful that they're going to get it um so lots of um lots of reasons there but I think Luz did touch on the primary ones that I've encountered. Yeah, I think it's important just to point out here that, you know, the DVC, the diverse um, vascular cognitive impairment dementia studies, as well as the Alzheimer's disease research centers and the other associated studies, they don't give um, care. They're not clinical. But if anything unusual shows up, you know, their PCP, their primary care provider is going to be notified. Uh, these images are accessible upon request, and each center varies a little bit with that, um, but that is a possibility and it, it's accounted for. And they are seeing some of the top doctors in the in the country mm-hmm. for memory disorders. They're just not being provided direct care under this case. But yeah, I can see where that's a motivation for um, folks just to be seen at any time by and be part of a big giant clinical research study like that. It's- yeah, it takes, I mean, from our side, uh, like it's part of our work, just, you know, repeating and repeating all over again that this is not like, we are not providing care uh, in several ways. I mean, like, like the message is the same, but I'm explaining with different words. Uh, but even though we do that, um, it happens what what Luz and Lillian said, this therapeutic misconception that they will get some sort of care. Uh, but that feedback that uh, Lillian was talking about, uh, for them it is important. Uh, I mean, it's something that even though it's not like you will go to a, you know, a consultation, an appointment with a physician, right? Uh, but some sort of feedback related to, you know, your memory performance. Um, for them, that's that's something important that they want to know. Yeah. Yeah, important motivating information. So. You know, one thing that I want to just add is any part, any of our participants, um, they will have access to our licensed clinical social workers that we have on site, where. I will make sure that they actually get in touch with them, that they have a face-to-face at some, face-to-face some, at some point. One of our social workers, she's actually heavily involved in the community, and she has support groups and quality of life programs. So that's if they are coming to me, and then eventually they're going to come to her. And so part of the message that I give my participants is, even if you don't feel like you're getting anything out of this and this is basically you're doing us a favor you're doing research and humankind a favor um, do know that at least you're going to be set to know about the resources the local resources that we have out in town the caregivers you know who are struggling heavily with their caring for us for someone with alzheimer's or even a cognitive impairment that they're having to work there are organizations that uh, we collaborate with that focus on caring for the caregiver. Mm-hmm. And uh, they provide a variety of sources, including respite care. And so 
part of my delivery is like I tell them, you know, I just want you to know that after you find out your research diagnosis is part of our longitudinal study, which, you know, if, if it comes back something other than normal, I want to, I want you to know that we're going to kind of, we're going to help you through this journey. I'm not just, we're not, you're not just here for us to collect data. We want to make sure that you're set, even though you're not having a clinical diagnosis, but you're going to be set because you wouldn't find out about these resources down the line, um, automatically, <clears throat> or at least you'll have a, a, a head start knowing about these other resources, including our social work and emotional support. Yeah, I think it's important to just point out to folks that we are a point of contact with a, with a medical system. Um, every one of these research programs are necessarily embedded into a uh, hospital. So just uh, ethically, we are if there are things like social work is needed, we can point them into those directions. And we do that faithfully. And um, I think our participants appreciate that. Again, it's being paid attention to, it's being listened to, it's uh, reinforcing our, um, our responsibility and our perseverance in the community to be helping our community members learn about whatever resources are available to them. Absolutely. Uh, well, this was a really enjoyable hour we've spent together talking about these important issues within clinical research and trying to uh, uh, bridge the health disparity gaps that we have and bring, make our clinical research a healthier, more welcoming home for Hispanic Americans, for Latin Americans, however variable, however, however, you know, this broad, wonderful nation of ours embraces the differences that we have. Um, we need to, as scientists and clinicians, to do a better job of making sure that we are inclusive. And I think we've taken an important step forward and I really appreciate and want to thank each and every one of you for your contributions today. Thank you, Doc. Thank you for listening to Brain Health in Diverse America. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Brain Health in Diverse America podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. Brain Health in Diverse America is brought to you by the NIH grant-funded Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study and the UC Davis School of Medicine. To learn more about participating in our nationwide Diverse Vascular Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Study, click on the link in the episode description. Any questions or comments, please email us at diversevcid, all one word, at ucdavis.edu. And thanks for listening.